the really simple thing they're doing is they're making sure that the name on the parcel when it goes to French customs does not have a Russian address. It has, a, has an Emirati address in the UAE. And they make sure that the name on the invoice when it turns up does not have a Russian name on it. In that regard, it's pretty simple. Welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Marit, and in this episode, we are talking about how Russian money still flows through Europe. The money means cash. Bring out the deal. Following the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, Russia became the most sanctioned country in the world, with more than 14,000 sanctions on its citizens and entities currently in place. Despite this, the intricate and undisclosed relationships between the Russian nationals and European businesses operating across the various countries remain intact and active. This is best demonstrated by the story we're focusing on today, a French businessman allegedly putting specialist microchips into the hands of the Russian military through a complex chain of transactions. But how? And what are both parties getting from this? In today's episode, I'm joined by some great guests to discuss. What is Russia buying and smuggling from Europe? Amid heavy sanctions, how do these alleged trades continue to operate? And what are the real-world consequences of not effectively shutting this down? To dive into this topic, I'm here with Max Seddon, Moscow Bureau Chief, and Chris Cook, Senior Reporter at the Financial Times. Welcome to The Laundry, Max and Chris. Can you both tell our listeners about you and your news beats at the FT? I'm the Moscow Bureau Chief. It's a bit, a bit like being the king of, of Yugoslavia in that I, I haven't been there in, in some time, but I'm, I'm in charge of all of our Russia coverage, you know, predominantly, of course, uh, focusing on uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine and how that is transforming uh, Russia, its, its society, its, its, its economy, and, uh, uh, of course, the, the military aspects of that. And I'm Chris Cook. I'm the senior reporter at the FT. Uh, I have a very vague job title because what I do is, is quite ill-defined, but I'm a quite data-led reporter. And when the war uh, broke out, uh, the full-scale invasion, I realized there, there are things we could do together um, using um, using uh, data-led reporting. Thanks for the introduction. Let's dive into the conversation. So let's just get started with, uh, you know, this story, super interesting. Let's get started with what kind of microchips are we really talking about here? So this is a story about a very obscure type of microchips called the gallium arsenide and gallium uh, nitride chips. They're not an enormously big market. It's a few billion dollar sort of market, but they are extremely important microchips because um, they have physical properties about the ability to deal with um, high power uh, that make them extremely useful for specific um, military applications in particular. So these are, we're talking about kinds of microchips that are found routinely in radar systems and that we know are used in uh, making amplifier uh, microchips that can be used in a variety of sort of antennae um, and you know other things with sort of clear military applications. These microchips, since they're so specialized, are there any current sanctions in place on these? And if so, when did that come into place? So these kinds of microchips are really useful for uh, military as well as having commercial applications. They're so-called dual-use products. So. Uh, you can't sell them to a wide variety of countries. You can't sell them to Iranians or North Koreans. You can't sell them to you know, transition countries. To sell them abroad, you have to sort of 
comply with export controls to make sure that these goods don't fall into the hands of our adversaries. Since Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014, it has been subject to rules that make it very difficult for them to get their hands on this kind of technology in particular. And they need it for their military operations, this particular chip. Yeah, and we, we can see that the, we know from, from doc, we can go into this a bit later, but we can see from documentation, they're really keen on this particular kind of microchip made by this particular company um, at, at its particular specifications. It had qualities that they thought they couldn't get otherwise. I think I think if you're speaking about dual use microchips more more generally, though, the, the, this the, uh, is a bit different because we're talking about things like radar and electronic warfare that you wouldn't necessarily find on a battlefield that the Ukrainian military has opened up all sorts of Russian drones, missiles uh, and uh, other other such uh, equipment that Russia has been using in, in the invasion. And they, they have found every every imaginable you know, Western made microchip in uh, these these systems, and the reason why why they're called dual use is that the, the, these might be you know, quite quite famously they even found microchips from washing machines, that not very sophisticated components that have quite legitimate civilian applications, but also they can be used in say a missile. And what's also important is that given the sanctions, so what was something that Russia has shown that's willing to do is uh, go go for a quantity over over quality in what is putting out on on the battlefield. So you might not necessarily be able to get the absolute best microchip that makes your your missile extremely accurate but i think uh, russia has more or less demonstrated it doesn't really care how how accurate its, its missiles anyway the main goal is just to rain down as much, much destruction on ukraine as as possible and just just whatever microchips they're able to get you know, quite quite often they they will do because uh the soviet union and then russia has has never really been uh and an effective producer of, of microchips, and that's why smuggling has always been been key to the Russian defense industry in general, and microchips in particular. So we have this situation that you know Russia they need this very particular microchip that is suitable for military operations that they you know are subject to strict export controls, and then we also have this uh, need for just any microchip because that's they go for the the quantity over quality and just you know can use microchips for washing machines uh, etc but this very specific microchips there are two individuals at the very center of your story here maxim ermakov and mark rocky so how do these guys fit into this story well, shall I start with uh, with Mark uh, Rocky, who is a French businessman, and he makes these microchips. So he is a long-standing executive of a company called Omic, which is near Paris in France. Omic is a uh, it's a specialist in these particular gallium nitrite and gallium arsenide chips. Um, there are not many places that make these things. They're quite a small market, um, and he is he refers to the company as his baby. He talks about, you know, um, how he had to, you know, his obvious emotional distress at the fact that the company's not doing that well. And one of the themes of the story is um, the company is actually is struggling and gets itself into trouble. Um, uh, yeah, he, so he's the, he's our first character. Max, I wonder if you want to take on your namesake. Yeah, so what, what we started with, you know, a, a wonderful scene i think linking linking the two of them in uh, july 2021 uh mark, mark rocky and uh, maxim yermakov the russian microchip buyer went on a yacht together off the coast of greece and uh, at one point maxim wearing wearing his, his swimming trunks fell asleep on the deck of the yacht and for whatever reason mark decided to take a picture of of him this this mysterious russian man who's who's uh 
a full name he didn't even know. He he he, he just knew that Maxim was working for a, a mysterious Russian company that on paper didn't even have any ties to anymore that was buying, you know, very interested in buying these highly specific microchips. They they even offered him at one point cash and women uh, to to supply more microchips, but uh, Rocky declined because uh, it was just a business deal for him. They, they, they really needed the money from Russia and he knew who Maxim was uh, ultimately buying the microchips for, which is this uh, defense industry manufacturer uh, just outside Moscow called the NPP Istok which uh, makes electronic warfare systems for for the Russian military. So he uh, absolutely knew that you know these were the people who were interested in buying his highly specific microchips. So we have Mark, French business guy. He makes these chips, very specialized chips in a small market. You know, there are trade export regulations and he had been relying on Russia as a big customer and suddenly he can't sell them to Russia anymore. So his business is struggling. So he then is really wants to continue to sell to Russia. Is that the gist of it? The problem that Amic had was that its business model was essentially unprofitable. They had this Chinese investor with a significant stake in the company. And uh, ever since he came in, they had started selling microchips to China at an uh, unprofitable price. They, they, you know, they were losing money hand over fist doing this. And uh, that was why when, when the Russians appeared, uh, which in this relationship that goes back uh, uh, at least to the mid 2000s, you know that that was something that became an increasingly important part of of their business. And where this became uh, a real problem for them was 2014, after Putin annexed Crimea. This is when the first sanctions and, and export controls on exporting technology like this to Russia, particularly for military end users, came in. And uh, that is where the role of someone like like Maxime became more important because as someone who has a lot of expertise, setting up front companies, faking documentation and doing everything he can to try to obscure that it's the Russian military at the end of the day that's actually buying these microchips. But it's worth saying, actually, like the, the so they start this, they start the enterprise that we're you know talking about getting these specific microchips through the specific guy, through Maxime in 2013. So before the um, invasion of Crimea. And they use these tricks to try and hide their relationship right from the beginning. There have always been, you know, export controls on this sort of sensitive technology. And we should be clear, they're also not allowed to send it to China. All of these things are, you know, a difficult wrong. But the but what 2014 does is it basically means that even more stuff is export controlled. Russia is into like a higher category of, of you know, villain, basically. And even more things are difficult for them to to export. So yeah, as, as Max says, they have this sort of longer term relationship. Then in 2014, everything becomes a nightmare for them. But by 2014, they are already acting quite suspiciously and they are already doing what we're about to talk about, which is using weird cutouts and intermediaries to get the, get the goods through. Yeah, because that's what I'm also very curious about. How, you know, Mark wants to sell these microchips, Maxime is in the picture, but how do you physically get these microchips from where they are produced in Europe and into Russia with all these controls in place? Uh, well, this, this brings, I think, I think the third character in our story in uh, an uh, Irishman called Dennis Sugru, who uh, for a start is is someone who, who illustrates you know quite quite well that it's not like you know before 2014 you could just export whatever microchip or you know electronics you wanted to to Russia. This was uh, already covered by 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 regulations. He himself was in fact arrested by the FBI in in 2005 uh, for for doing just this. He he um, he wound up getting off. The the case fell apart 
after a few months. And uh, he he wrote this uh, memoir about how he was this innocent businessman who had just been selling um, electronics to Russia who had been wrongly framed as a spy by the FBI. And you know, he, he self-published this book and uh, you know, printed a few copies in, in Kyrgyzstan, where, where his wife is from. It wasn't exactly a bestseller, in fact, on a Bookmate, which is uh, the, main, the main Russian e-reading app. There's only one person who read the Russian translation of it all the way through, and that was Maxim Yermakov. And that is, <laughs> uh, in terms of its middlemen like Dennis Sugru and this uh, and this brother Owen, who really played a crucial role in making sure that you know, microchips made by you know, someone like like Mark Rocky and his company Omic get into the hands of uh, Russian military end users like like Maxim, because what they do uh, through, th- uh, uh, in this case, of their company. Uh, Amadean Systems, uh, they uh, were able to set up this network of uh, intermediaries that that obscured uh, who was buying the microchips from Omic and uh, enabled you know, to to a certain extent uh, for for the seller to to pretend uh, that they didn't know that actually these these microchips were being sold for the Russian military. For for people interested in AML and trade finance, what the Sugars do is incredibly simple. So they are an Irish company. What they do is they send an invoice to Omic that says, so we're going to buy 500 chips from you. They take delivery in Dubai or one of the other Emirates of the UAE. They then appear to just ship it straight through to Russia, where a company in Russia called Flybridge, which is Emikov's basically pet company, pays the Irish guys in return. And then this company in Russia is just a front for Istok, for the for the defense contractor. So there's this, it's a really simple process, right? So Istok gives the money to Flybridge. Flybridge gives the money to Amadeum, which is the Irish company, the Sugurus. And then Amadeum pays Omic. And so the really simple thing they're doing is they're making sure that the name on the parcel when it goes through French customs does not have a Russian address. It has, a, has an Emirati address in the UAE. And they make sure that the name on the invoice when it turns up does not have a Russian name on it. In fact, one of the things we know from the French investigation is that the moment when one of the moments when the authorities almost catch on to something happening but don't realize is that Mark Rocky tells the French police at one point that they had problems because someone started asking questions about why they kept making these payments, taking these payments from Dubai. Like, who is this guy in Dubai? Which is, in fact, the Irish guys. So that's the really simple thing, right? That you just send it from France to Dubai, from Dubai to a middleman in Russia, from the middleman in Russia to the final end user, the, 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 the military company. In that regard, it's pretty simple. Ownership is important at Strice. Our UBO maps are a signature feature for a reason. That's why it's crucial that our users should be able to amend and edit the ownership structures of a company the minute they get the new information. Strice's latest feature, Edit Ownership, does just that. You can edit ownership information all in a centralized location. Quick and accurate data management is key to making sound business decisions, especially with no loss to your workflow. Goodbye, outdated ownership data. Hello, AML intelligence. Nice! The use of strawman and setting up complex network is, of course, very well known in uh, when you try to, to launder money and, and do financial crime. But just an interesting question, tapping into the AML piece, is that in banks, there is a lot of regulations in place where you need to do thorough investigations on especially dual-use goods. You know, if uh, a customer is sending money to someone else and it is uh, items that is dual use or, you know, some trade violations in place. Do you feel that any any bank in this 
story that actually performed the transaction failed in their checks. Do you think it'd have been yeah, uncovered? Yeah. Yeah. The story is fundamentally, we can maybe we can zoom to the, the end of the story, right? Which is that that basically in about 2018, the network, so this is running from 2013, 14 to around 2018, doing this very simple thing, France, Dubai, Russia, France, Dubai, Russia. And then in about 2018, they start, Rocky's testimony to the police is that we start getting a lot more complexity in the network. So they start doing weird stuff. They have this thing called Project Sichuan North, which is they'll send it to China and then from China it will be routed in. So that means sending it effectively to the owner of the company, who's the Chinese guy, and then having him send it on from there, which is a hard, like that's almost an internal transfer within the company, right? You can see that's a more complex thing to unpack. We know that they sent goods to a Singaporean company and that the Singaporean company sent it on to another, to a Russian company, which is unrelated to any of the other ones we talked about, which was front for, for Istok. Uh, we know they sent stuff through India at one point. So the, the, they are starting to get more complicated. But one of the things that we know from, from Rocky's testimony is that throughout the whole process, the thread that remains in place is that the, that the Irish companies remain the link. They remain the, the ostensible buyer in lots of these cases. So they, they eventually get caught because a customs officer in France starts checking a, some of their parcels and they, they look at the documentation, they look at the kit and they think, hang on a minute, you've said this is basically a really simple, small chip that isn't subject to export control because it's uninteresting. And they went away and took it to a French state laboratory who checked the kit and concluded the company was lying about what was in the box. This is a much higher grade piece of equipment than, than they had let on. And then they started, you know, they start getting in contact with the company and say, what's going on here? And then it, as the customs get onto them, they start blocking a series of shipments. Now that they're onto them, now they see what's going on. And you can see, we, kept, we started, started talking at the beginning about how Omic was financially stressed. They are desperate to get this kit out to Russia. So they... They start sending it through Italy, where it gets blocked again. They start sending it through other routes. At uh, one point, they send it through Lithuania, and they do it by... They send it from Mark Rocky's son-in-law's house to break the link to Omic altogether. So Omic's name isn't on the paperwork at all. And they send it to a fake guy called Roman Khrushchevi. is this made-up name of this ostensible recipient in Lithuania. Um, and the customs are the ones who unravel all of this. And that is the thing where the authorities get their claws into it. But at no point, there's this one hint that the fact that the payments are being made from Dubai for the, for the chips is a concern. That's a thing that comes up once. But otherwise, the AML community, the banks, the, the regulators drop the ball on this completely. It's, it's worth pointing out that these are also quite quite small transactions that, that wouldn't necessarily, you know, compared to, you know, larger scale financial flows, attract that much money. We're talking about a few million dollars, uh, you know, a year like in, the, in these highly specific chips. Uh, just just um, uh, following on from what from what Chris said, I think uh, something that this case also shows that's, uh, that's very interesting when, when you're thinking about AML is the difference between banking compliance uh, and enforcement with, with sanctions and the enforcement of export controls. And something that the war in Ukraine, especially since the full-scale invasion last year, has really thrown up is uh, how 
this is a uh, you know, different kettle of fish. Because if you look at, say, you know, banking sanctions, uh, um, all of the most famous examples when large Western banks were uh, caught violating you know, large scale, you know, uh, all the all, all, all these checks, these were after the U.S. really stepped up its enforcement over a decade ago following the big sanctions against Iran. So you're thinking about BNP Paribas, you're thinking about HSBC, even even if that wasn't you know, itself connected to Iran, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, other cases like that, where the the U.S. because of the unique role of uh, American financial regulators and the dollar play in the global financial system was able to crack down on uh, a lot of these banks. They had to pay fines in in the U.S. Yeah, you know, they they all have branches there. They all you know trade trade in the dollar with uh, export controls. It's a bit more complicated if you look at how how these things work. You know, a big big difference between the U.S. and the EU. It's not like that. You know, the U.S. has a complete, you know, 100% record on on this. The American microchips and uh, other dual-use goods have turned up in uh, the Russian war machine uh, over the last year as as well. But what the U.S. certainly does have is a lot more capacity than uh, the European Union's 27 member states uh, to check this stuff. You, if, you, if you speak to former American officials who have been uh, working on this issue in their time in government, they will tell you that literally you go into a room you know, this whole army of Americans uh, meeting, you know, whichever European country it is. And you say, okay, you know, here's, here's what we're doing. Uh, this is Jimmy, Bob, Jane, you know, the ones leading, each leading our own giant task force. You have dozens of bureaucrats investigating this stuff. And then the European country, they just say, oh, it's just, you know, us, us three guys. And this is all compounded by the fact that in the European Union, sanctions and customs enforcement is not done at the block-wide level. There, there is no OFAC. There is no equivalent of you know, the Bureau of Industry and Security in the U.S. Commerce Department at the European level. So in, in the case of uh, OMIC, uh, it's, it's mostly France that is, is responsible for, for not in enforcing these, these checks. And something that people like Maxime Yormakov have uh, proved to be quite good at is for a start, you can just move these things around in um, the European Union. And we we found earlier this year that in, in, in the first year since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine alone, uh, more more than a billion dollars of goods was shipped through countries uh, such, uh, bordering Russia, such as the Baltic states. That is very interesting because, you know, we have this one story with this French company using networks to kind of obscure that they are in fact doing business with Russia. But in the EU, how big of a problem this is, is this? Is it just like this one example or how much do you think there is like this one? Ooh, it's not one. It's well, not yeah, one so, 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 so you look at this story, it was, you know, if you look at, say, you know, the Baltic states, what the Baltic states say that they are exporting to, to Kazakhstan. And then you put that on a graph compared with uh, what, what Kazakhstan says it is uh, receiving from, I don't know, uh, uh, Estonia. And there will be this absolutely enormous gap where if you speak to you know, experts, it's uh, you know, quite quite credibly believed to be stuff that they, they write down to clear, to clear customs that is, uh, 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 is that it's going to Kazakhstan via Russia. And of course, it goes to Russia. It never leaves Russia. And it was actually... Uh, intended for for Russia all all along, and if you speak to to officials, uh, you know here in the Baltic states, something they will tell you that these are you know some of the smallest countries in in Europe. They they uh, especially don't have you know as much enforcement capacity as as it would like, and because of the way that this is done, really in this really piecemeal fashion in in the European Union, what they want to see is you know bigger countries where you know more of the stuff is manufactured, such as you know France in this case or, or Germany to do more to uh, step up these uh, export 
checks. But we we are talking about billions of dollars a year that that is still going to to Russia through these various custom schemes. Yeah, Chris, you felt also strongly about this. What's your take? Well, the the words we the word a phrase we haven't used yet is SVR, which is the name of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, the successor of the old KGB sort of foreign service. One of the things we've known is that since about 1970, we think, the KGB set up something it called Lion X, which was a group of uh, intelligence officers posted in Russia and abroad, sometimes in unofficial cover, sometimes at home. If you watch The Americans, this is what, this is what Oleg's job is in, in The Americans. He's a Lion X officer, Director D, as it's called in the show. What they do is they their job is to like go and get kit. And early on, in the, particularly, the, what they're doing is they're trying to get like uh, a microchip or a part from IBM so they can replicate it at home. And since the 90s, it looks, I mean, there's all shadows on the wall, right? We don't know exactly what they're doing. Since the 90s in particular, it looks as though they've been just getting stuff. So like with Omic, getting thousands and thousands and thousands of chips. The, the French uh, authorities think they found invoices for about 5 million euros of chips and about 6 million euros of basically intellectual research property stuff. But this is there is a an apparatus in Russia that exists to get stuff out of other countries. And it's important to understand it's systematic and it's careful. And the someone we don't know, right? They, we don't have a photo of Maxim Emikov in a like a uniform, right, with a cap. He's not ever put that down as his job description anywhere. He does, however, do the job that is typically done by intelligence officers, right? And we know that when the French police were quizzing Rocky, we know that he was asked, what do you know about Maxim's job and what do you know about the SVR? Which is a bit, slightly, I think is striking, right? We don't know what he does for sure, but there's a, there's a, I think you can have reasonable grounds for suspicion about what Maxim Emikov's job really is and who he works for. I bring that up because it's, if you're if you're working in Western Europe, you have to get that there is like a professional operation that is trying to get the stuff that you make, if it's difficult to make, to get it into Russia. And the people who do this are not like they come across as small businessmen, they come across as like little SMEs just trying to get their hands on machine tools, or whatever. They're not, right? They 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 are part of an apparatus that does this continuously. And the companies in the in the G seven and the West and the EU have to really be thoughtful about the fact that the particularly if they're being asked to send stuff to to the UAE, particularly if they're being asked to send stuff to Turkey, if they get a load of, asked to send things to a mysterious counterparty in Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan, they have to be really suspicious in particular about people in those cases. Oh wow, I was not aware of this. So, you know, this started out with this story about this one French company who use obscure networks, but what you're saying is in fact that you know, for several decades, the Russians have had a professional program in place to really make sure that they get their hands on the stuff that we make here. Well, it's, and it's important to think think about why they they have this right, which which is uh, really really as long as the modern Russian defense industry has has existed, it has been uh, reliant on on Western technology going going back at least uh, seventy, if not a hundred years. And the reason is is because. You know, the, the Soviet Union in say you nineteen know, fifties, nineteen sixties did did not have this. You know, at, at the when we're speaking about microchips, uh, at the dawn of the microchip age, they they did not have the same uh, you know uh, capacity or or capabilities as the U.S. or um, other Western countries and countries in in Asia. There's actually this uh, fam- famous Soviet joke. You know, uh, long long live the Soviet microchip. 
the biggest microchip in in the world, which uh, is is funny because uh, microchips are supposed to be small. You know, the smaller they are, the uh, the better they are. And and so at some point, many many decades ago, the Soviet Union decided, you know, either either we can play what they assess to be a losing game, we can uh, invest more and more and more to trying to modernize our our capacity. But by the time that we catch up to the U.S. or, or Taiwan, they will have uh, progressed you know, even more leaps and bounds ahead of us. We will never catch them up or we, we could just steal their stuff. And uh, basically as a you know, core element of their national security, they, they switch to, to stealing the stuff. It um, is, is quite literally, you know, the stuff of movies when, when Linux was, was busted uh, is, is a movie about the, the Soviet mole for French intelligence who, who exposed all this uh, called, called farewell, which, which is quite, quite entertaining. If, uh, if, if you haven't seen that, but this is something that's essentially never changed. If you look at the the, the man who is head of Rostec, the company that owns Istok, Sergei Chemezov, when he was in, in the KGB working with Putin and Dresden, he he was working for Operation Luch, which uh, by by most accounts was an attempt to to get hold of uh, this this very same Western technology for the Soviet defense industry. And since then, not really that much has changed. You guys have a unique perspective. You work with this a lot every day. So. How do you guys see the sanctions against Russia evolving in 2024? That will be a very interesting perspective I would love our listeners to be left with. I would say it's less about, you know, what what new sanctions will will come come through again against Russia. There is really less and less stuff to to sanction these days and it's become quite quite clear to the policymakers that the hope that you know quite a lot of people had in the west at the beginning of the full-scale invasion that the sanctions would you know really batter russia's economy to the extent that would make putin decide to stop the war that hasn't happened uh, firstly the, the the effect they have is more longer term it's much more a story of decline over you know 5 10 20 years because of lack of access to technology and financial markets rather than, you know, this big you know, cratering drop that uh, didn't happen in March 2022. But also Putin, you know, even even with you know, what the Russia has had to, had to put up with economically is still quite clearly determined to see the war through anyway. So I think the issue is less about what new sanctions are going to come through than how these sanctions are going to be enforced. Because as our story shows, you know, Maxim Yermakov uh, really up until as recently as, as we know, even after the the arrest of Mark Murky, was still active through through other companies trying to import as much Western technology as he could for the Russian war machine. And it's about enforcing the sanctions to get people to stop doing that. I think that's right. And I think the I mean we didn't we didn't mention this. They, they, the Emakov's network is still bringing stuff through Serbia. Like we can still see that on customs dockets. Like it's still active. We know that the the Omic branch of it was just one branch of it and the, the rest of it is there but it's just better hidden and better submerged we think there are hints of it working in germany that we've seen too the in terms of like the future for for sanctions i think the one of the things we've seen over the last sort of two three months is an increasingly aggressive pursuit of facilitators and individuals so rather than saying we're going to go for more kinds of microchip what they're doing is they're saying this Turkish business is going to lose access to banks. This Turkish business is going to lose access to you know to finance. This shipping company over here is a is a violator, and the hope is that they can try and zap sort of architects within the network so that the um, if you if you know once they they sat Maxime has been sanctioned in the last few weeks right so the hope they that the authorities have is that he will now not only be able to be involved or travel to build his networks and then he'll have to find new sort of middlemen and have to rebuild a little bit so it will knock them back a little bit and the hope will be that by zapping these architects these middlemen 
and going for these companies, they can actually do a lot more damage than by sort of imposing sectoral sanctions or changing the sort of overall overall peace. Because the, I think the calculation from authorities is that that's the easy thing to do to try and destabilize Russia's buying capacity. Russian smuggling networks are a hive mind. You got to take out the queen and then all the front companies will die. <laughs> yeah, take out, like destabilize the network and then it kind of all collapses. With that, Max and Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you? All our work is uh, ft.com. In fact, if you go to, I think, ft.com slash chris-cook or ft.com slash max-sedden, you can get all of our work. And we are, of course, on, on Twitter uh, or X, as, 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 the, as the cool kids are calling it these days, I'm at max Sedden. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please also leave a review. We really appreciate those. To get in touch with us, The Laundry team, you can comment on the Strize LinkedIn page or email laundry at strize.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matthew Dunn-Miles. Our engineers were Nicholas Tan and Dominic Dallargy. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice, the AML automation cloud. If you're looking for smart automation of your AML processes, you should go visit strice.ai. See you next time. Money